Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of What the Forensics. I'm Journey, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Nicole and Rebecca. Um, just to let you all know, we're still working to perfect our audio, so please bear with us. We really appreciate all of your support thus far. Uh, today's episode discusses sexual assault, assault, torture, kidnapping, and murder. Some of the descriptions can get quite graphic, so listeners' discretion is advised. We are going to try to consistently use the term sexual assault instead of rape to minimize any potential triggers. And now I'm going to hand this over to Nicole, who's going to tell us a bit more about who the toolbox killers were and the horrible things that they did. Thank you, Journey. So to start, the toolbox killers were Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. So just a little bit of background of the two. Bittaker had quite the extensive um, criminal past, to say. So he was put up for adoption after birth, and he was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. Bittaker. His father worked in aircraft factories, so it caused them to move around a lot, which I assume impacted his social networking with friends and all of that. He surprisingly had a really high IQ, and it was of a tested IQ of 138. But he dropped out of high school because he just had so many run-ins with the law. He was just like, no, I don't want to be in school for this. So his first run-in was actually when he was 12 years old. He was caught for shoplifting. So after that, he was charged for car theft, leaving a hit-and-run accident, and evading arrest in 1957. So he was sent to California Youth Authority until he was 19. So only a few days after his release, he was arrested by the FBI for violating the Interstate Motor Vehicle Theft Act and was then convicted two years later in 1959. He was sentenced to 18 months. Yeah, 18 months. But apparently he had like good behavior or some. It just says his behavior allowed him to be released only after six months out of his 18 month sentence. And so they transferred him to the Missouri Medical Center, like, in that time. Again, he was arrested less than a year later, sentenced to 1 to 15 years, which doesn't make sense, having that 1 to 15 years possible sentence. That's a massive gap. (laughs) Yeah. 1 to 15 years in 61 in the state, state prison. Here he had a psychiatric evaluation, and there they deemed him as paranoid and borderline psychotic with very little control over his impulses. But he was released in 1963, two years later. How does that happen, though? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) But there's more. There's more. So in October of 1964, so a year, less than a year later, says he was picked up two months later for parole violation and suspected robbery. So sent to jail again, another psych eval was performed, and they diagnosed him as a borderline psychotic again. But he was released and again arrested in 1967 for theft and fleeing a hit-and-run accident. So with this one, he was sentenced five years, but was released after serving less than three A year later, in March 1971, Bitteker was arrested again for burglary and parole violation. He was sentenced from six months to 15 years. So again, a wide range, which I just don't understand how that's a thing. I just thought it was like X amount of years. Yeah, why would you give like a range of years? Who gets to decide how little or how much that he does? Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, he only served three out of his possible 15. Oh, my God. And what kind of sent him away, not for good, but where he met his partner in crime, he stabbed a supermarket employee um, because he was confronting him about stealing a steak, which he had shoved down his pants and tried to walk out of the supermarket with. Yep. So... (laughs) I can only just shake my head. Like, I don't even, like, oh, sir, how dare you accuse me of stealing? Like, hmm, I'm going to stab you because that's a logical chain of events. So, of course, the shop 
shopkeeper was doing his job and was like, hey, like, you're stealing merchandise, please pay. But he stabbed him, but the guy actually survived, so he was convicted of only attempted murder. So he went to California Men's Colony, and this is where he would lead, later meet um, Roy Norris, who, as we talk about, they did all of their horrific things together. Men's Colony while, sounds like a cult. Sorry. That's yeah, just- no. It 100% does. And while he was there, though, he was given another psych eval. So this is his third eval. But instead of borderline psychotic, he was di- diagnosed as a classic sociopath. But I don't know what a classic sociopath means and what levels of sociopath there are. <laughs> yeah, it would have been helpful to get a bit of a scale. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kind of thinking classic. it's like... Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking it's like, ha, classic sociopath. <laughs> what yeah, a like slapper. <laughs> just your classic. <laughs> That's all that came to mind. So, and then another psychiatrist called him a sophisticated psychopath. Oh. So he's got classic sociopath and sophisticated psychopath. But well, despite you don't these, want on their own. Exactly. Together, together, you're a. Uh, sophisticated classic gentleman so <laughs> you don't need to no. incorporate the other half of it all. no I don't think that's how that works <laughs> so anyways despite these diagnoses he was uh still released in November of 78 so that was good so talking about a little bit of the backstory of Roy Norris now He was born out of wedlock, even though his parents married later on. So this was kind of like a saving grace to the two because it was a huge stigma um, to be to have a child out of wedlock at that time. Of course, his mom was a drug addict and his father worked in a scrapyard. So Roy Norris spent a lot of his childhood growing up with foster families. At 16, he began talking to a female family friend. And this kind of escalated, and he started talking in an aggressive sexual manner towards her. So she made him leave, contacted his father about it, told him everything. And so his father actually threatened to beat Norris after this encounter. And in response, Norris stole his car's, his father's car at 16, drove up into the Rocky Mountains and tried to commit suicide by injecting air into his arteries with a syringe. Oh. So did that. Um, Obviously, it didn't work. He survived that. The police found him, returned him home. So a year later, when he turned 17, he dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. Most of his service was in San Diego, but he actually served four months in Vietnam, but he saw no combat while he was there. While he was still in the Navy, he was arrested for attempted rape in 1969, but was released on bail. But while on bail, he was arrested again three months later before his trial date. So he tried to attack a woman in her home, but he was unsuccessful, I guess, charged and he was discharged from the Navy for psychological problems, which makes sense. In 1970, so about a year later, he brutally attacked a female student while out on bail again. He jumped her from behind, hit her over the head with a rock, and slammed her head against the concrete several times. She surprisingly lived from this, and he was only charged with assault with a deadly weapon. Are you serious? That's brutal. Yep. Yep. Oh, my goodness. He was sent to Atascadero State Hospital. I may or may not have pronounced that right. As a sex offender, but only spent five years there. He was released because he wasn't considered a threat to society anymore. Um, But three months after his release, he attacked and raped a 27-year-old woman and he was convicted of forcible rape and was sent to California Men's Colony, which is where Bideker was. So he met Bideker there and claims that he saved Norris's life twice in prison, which bound him to Bideker according to prisoner's code. So, culty, yes. <laughs> 
He was released less than two months after Bitteker was released. So Bitteker was released in January of, sorry, Bitteker was released in November of 78 and Norris was released in January of 79. So Norris moved to LA with his mom and here there's not a lot of information about it, but it's believed he began a incestual relationship with his mother. That's Ew, gross. No. No, yep, no. a little Freudian no. if you ask me, but that's yeah. okay. And so once he was out, Bitteker contacted Norris, and they continued their friendship, proceeding with everything that happened after that. But while they were in this jail together, they would create plans to rape and kill local young women. So they would discuss their mutual interests in sexual assault, coming up with ways to adapt abduct and sexually assault women without getting caught because that's just a classic we talk about that all the time don't we girls we just just what are friday nights gonna be just classic girl talk you know yeah yeah so bitteker bought a 77 gmc cargo van which they nicknamed murder mac and it was your classic like rape van what you would think of a rape van like no windows on the side two little windows on the back which they had like curtains covering and a large sliding door that they thought would make it very easy to abduct these women they just slide pull in close so from february to june 1979 this was their trial run period So they would drive along the Pacific Coast Highway. They would talk to girls, take photographs of them, stop at beaches. And they would drive down various fire roads in the mountain, they were called. So this is kind of like backlogging roads, like unpaved kind of roads. And they would look for places with privacy where they could go and commit these assaults on these women. So at the beginning of June 1979... Roy Norris attempted to rape a woman, but she escaped. So, of course, after this, they agreed that they would do everything together from then on because they'd have more luck if it was the two of them. Hey, teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, I mean, you're not wrong at all. (laughs) So they put their plan into action on June 24th of 79, where 16-year-old Cindy Schaefer, or... um, Lucinda Lucy Schaefer, they call her nickname was Cindy Schaefer, was forced into the van by Norris while she was walking home from church. And this was near Redondo Beach. So what they did to her is they gagged her, duct taped her mouth and bound her limbs. And then Bitteker drove out of sight to their fire road. Then they proceeded to take turns sexually assaulting her. So one would have his turn while the other stood guard outside, and then they'd switch. And Norris sexually assaulted her twice while Bitteker sexually assaulted her once. So after the fact, they, the two men were actually arguing about what to do with her, whether to kill her or let her go. And Norris was like, well, I told her we wouldn't kill her, so I think we should let her go. Yeah, Bitteker insisted on killing her so they she wouldn't be able to identify her because they'd be put to jail for life if she identified them, basically. So Roy Norris actually tried strangling her first, but couldn't do it. He didn't like looking into her eyes, and he actually ran and threw up after trying to strangle her. So... Bitteker, like he can do all these horrific things to her, but that's where he draws the line. Oh, yeah. Look, I guess he wasn't looking into her eyes beforehand, and so it was the eye component that unfortunately did it for him. But he became awful after that. He just had no filter after that. So Bitteker took charge. He strangled her with a coat, like a wire coat hanger. And what they would do is they straightened it out and then they would tighten the wire coat hanger with vice grips around their neck because strangling them with their hands wasn't doing it for them. So they would basically garrot them. Yeah, that was a home. Yeah, it was their own garrot. Wow. 
So the two of them then wrapped her body in a shower curtain and unfortunately dumped her into a nearby cannon. So it's a common theme with these guys that they would take their victims to this fire road and just dump their bodies over the hill. Like, just leave them, unfortunately. So, disturbingly, Bideker kept a written record of what happened that night, and he talked about Cindy's demeanor and, you know, how she acted when they got her. So, he said, quote, displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming, end quote. That's kind of horrifying. Yeah, and the fact that it's, I wouldn't say, like, eloquently written, but he he was like, yeah, like, she she knew and she kind of was strong about it. Well, like he that, sounded like a really good writer. Which yeah, which bothers terrible. me even more because he's yep. a terrible person. Mm-hmm. And so after their first victim, they picked up Andrea Hall, who was an 18-year-old who was hitchhiking in July of 1979. So they had actually tried to pick her up while she was hitchhiking, but another car actually picked her up first and beat them to it. So they followed the car into to where he she was dropped off and then proceeded to ask if she needed another ride. So she agreed, got in, but with this, Roy Norris was hiding in the back of the van. So what they did with the Murder Mac, their van, is they had like a cooler, they had their tools, they had a bed, um, like minimal stuff, but also like it makes sense for a murder van, I guess. I don't know. So Norris was hiding in the back, and when Bideker offered Hall a drink from the cooler, when she reached around back to grab a drink, Norris attacked her and dragged her into the back. Um, so he then gagged her, taped her mouth, and bound her arms and legs like he did with the first victim. And they took her to this fire road again and took turns sexually assaulting her while the other would stand guard. So kind of the same way that they did with Cindy Schaefer, unfortunately. So here, Norris thought that he saw headlights during all of this. So he drove the van up a small hill while Bittaker dragged Hall into the bushes and up a hill. And when he returned two hours later, he showed Norris eight pictures he took of Hall performing oral sex and of her in various positions while nude. And so I just want to disclaim that some of the things these men did to torture these women are quite graphic and more so than typical. So I just want to warn listeners again beforehand. So Bideker wanted to sexually assault Hall again after Norris returned. So he dragged her back up the hill and Norris drove to the store to get a beer, but they kept communication through walkie-talkies. So in this time, Bideker stabbed Hall with an ice pick through her ear and into her brain. But this did not kill her, so he turned her over and pushed the pick through her other ear, stepping on it until the handle broke. This, again, didn't kill her. I don't know how, but this didn't kill her instantly. So he strangled her with the metal clothes hanger and pliers again, the way he did with Schaefer. Uh, Horrible. I just can't even fathom the that you a man can do that or anyone in a sense can do that to a woman or anyone yeah it's unbelievable so he threw her down the cliff and then when Norris came back from picking up beer Bittaker was seen alone and he proceeded to show Norris more pictures that he took of Hall and here she appeared very frightened and I guess Bittaker said that this was right after he told her that he was going to kill her and he wanted her to say everything that she could to beg for him to not kill her in this time wow yeah so sad So this was in July, 
in September, there were two girls at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach. The two of, so Roy and Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker offered 15-year-old Jackie Gillum and 13-year-old Jacqueline Lamp a ride, in which they accepted. But they noticed that Bittaker, who was driving, was heading in a different direction, and so the girls started to protest. Lamp tried to open the sliding door, but Norris struck her on the head with a sap, it's called, which is a bag filled with lead weights. So that knocked her out, but only momentarily. So they kind of put up a fought, but the guys, the men were able to subdue them, bind them, and keep them in the back. So these girls were actually held captive in the band for two days. They... Really? Two, two days. That's horrific. 15 and 13-year-old girl. That's awful. So... um. With Gillum, this was actually when they started to tape record their victims because they, yeah, they were like, well, she's a virgin. And I guess they got off on, like, hearing them scream and beg for them to stop kind of thing. So they would tape record them sexually assaulting and torturing these women. So an ice pick was used to stab Gillum's breasts and vice grip pliers were unfortunately used to tear off a piece of her nipple. Yeah. I hate that. I can hardly listen to that, even when you told us before. Yeah, and I tried not to go into, like, a lot of detail before, because I wanted, like, like, it's, pardon my language, it's fucked up. Like, it's... Definitely. I I don't know how anyone can do this. Right? And this isn't even the... This isn't even the worst of what they've done, too. This is them getting started and kind of testing things out. No, thank you. So on the second day, Norris took Lamp, so the 13-year-old, up a hill, took photos of her nude and while he was sexually assaulting her, and brought her back after. So, like, he left her there, came back, I guess, sexually assaulted Gillum again, but went back, collected her, and then came back to the van. Like, it was a lot of going back and forth from what I read. So... Unfortunately, again, Bittaker stabbed Gillum with an ice pick through her ear and then continued to choke her. He returned to the van, aroused Lamp, who had been forced to take tranquilizers so she would stay silent. So she ba- he basically woke her up, strangled her, and then Norris struck her with a sledgehammer until she died. A sledgehammer? Oh, my yeah. God. Wow. So... This is kind of why they were called the toolbox killers, because they just had an array of tools in their truck. So ice pick, pliers, um, sledgehammer, and screwdrivers were, like, their main tools, disturbingly. And again, dumped both girls' bodies over the cliff. And because this wasn't just dehumanizing enough as it was they left the ice pick in Gillum's head so when her body was found she still had the ice pick lodged in her ear so about 15 days later they attempted to abduct an identified woman who was actually able to escape she like dodged them and ran behind the van and ran away but three days after that they came up on a woman named Jan Malin or Malin not 100% sure on the pronunciation, where they maced her and attempted to drag her into the van. Here she screamed, which I would assume everyone tries to do, but it was in the middle of the day, and this caused people to come out of their homes because obviously they thought something was wrong. So Norris drove away, and Bittaker left on foot because Norris just abandoned him. (laughs) That was nice of him. As one does. That's a good friend. Yeah. (laughs) So here, the police actually showed a photo lineup to Malin, and she identified the two assailants as Bittaker and Norris. I guess they just had their photos because of their previous crimes. So they suspected them, but never really went after, from my understanding. Because Why? I don't know. They Well, I guess they did. I know Rebecca touch, touches on this a bit more, but they had one more victim after this this was Shirley Ledford but they were caught after 
Shirley Ledford. So I think her identification definitely helped, but they didn't like move into action with any of it right after. Cause they had no evidence. Like they didn't have any substantial evidence. It was just eyewitness testimony. And I guess you like, I know some agencies and police departments do base them off eyewitness testimony, but here, I guess they were like, we need hard proof. Yeah. It seems weird that they like, after she identifies them, that they wouldn't go out and like question them at least or yeah. tail them or like get something. Yeah. Yeah. So this was in September, at the end of September, and on October 31st, they kidnapped their last victim, who was 16-year-old Shirley Ledford, and she was hitchhiking back from her job. So with her, they kind of changed things up from their usual MO. They drove around L.A. while taking turns sexually assaulting her. So one would drive... The other would sexually assault in the back. They'd switch drivers, take turns that way. So while Norris was driving, Bittaker decided to start his tape recorder and sexually assaulted and tortured her in the back of the car. So Bittaker forced her to perform oral sex, all the while telling her he wanted her to scream and beg. And it's very graphic. I We have the transcript, not of the whole thing, but there's a bit of the transcript in our citations. And like, even I found it very difficult to read being in, I thought I was kind of desensitized to this, but I guess not. So he continually um, sexually assaulted, sodomized and tortured her with these tools. And again, this is the most kind of graphic in my opinion. So just kind of listener discretion advice again, so with the pliers, he tortured her by twisting her labia, clitoris, nipples, and breasts with his vice grip pliers. Through her agony, he still continued to make her talk dirty. I'm making air quotes with that. Talk dirty to him. All the while, he also proceeded to insert the pliers into her rectum, twisting, tearing, and splitting the lining inside. That's horrible. So Norris heard all of these and was like, hey, what are you doing? They switched spots. So Norris then forced her to flate him, so perform oral sex on him, because he could not sexually assault her vaginally or, or, or anally because of the damage that Bittaker had done to her. So Norris again encouraged her to scream during all of this, just as Bittaker had done, and proceeded to grab the same sledgehammer from their toolbox and struck her elbow. So she, in the transcript, it says that she had said, you broke it, like, please stop, my elbow's broken. He continues to strike her elbow 25 times on the same left elbow. Even after she said it's broken? Even after. Wow. Yep. So he turned the tape recorder off before strangling her by twisting the metal um, coat hanger with his pliers. And, like, it chills me, but her her last words were, quote, do it, just kill me, end quote. I couldn't even imagine listening to this. That makes me so sad. Yeah. And so... From what it's rumored, apparently these audio tapes are used in FBI training to desensitize new agents. So the whole audio tape isn't available for public. It's just for FBI use. And again, they will actually with her body in one more act of defiling her body, I guess, they left her naked body on a random lawn, face up, with her arms and legs spread out. So she was actually found the next morning. Could you imagine finding her? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a jogger as well. Like, he was on oh. his morning jog. Yeah. That would be scarring. Yeah. So FBI Special Agent E. Douglas, who's the kind of the mastermind behind um, criminal profiling, 
He described Bitteker as the most disturbing individual upon whom he has ever given a profile to. So out of, he's the guy that created profiling basically. And he said, this man is the worst I've ever seen. And disturbingly when he was away in, in prison, which Rebecca will touch on later, he used to sign his fan mail and yes, fan mail with pliers, not even his name. Bitteker would sign it pliers. Do you know how effed up that is? It's extremely like why why he pliers? Just, he, well, it was his go-to, I guess. Like yeah, I guess that makes but sense. But still, that's you have to be a new level of messed up. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, so the chief investigator of this case apparently committed suicide after and said that Bitteker and Norris were the main reasons why he did it and quoted these this tape because of it. Aw. I know. Horrible. Oh my god. I know. And lastly, there's a YouTube documentary that I think we've all I know Rebecca, you've seen it. I watched it the other day too. I don't know if you got a chance to watch it, Journey. No, I don't think I have. But there's a scene where people are seen fleeing the courtroom, basically crying after they play these tapes. Because obviously they need to use it as evidence. And people are seen, like, completely out of their wits. Like, they are crying. Some are going to the bathroom to vomit. They're saying this was, like, the worst thing they've ever done. Or they've ever witnessed. Sorry. Wow. Yeah. So, considering that people are coming from the courtroom, it's assumed and noted that they were convicted and charged. I haven't done any research on this, because I know, Rebecca, you wanted to discuss this a bit. So, after um, Shirley Ledford, what kind of played out in their arrest, and how did they get caught? So... After Shirley Ledford, uh, it wasn't very long after this. Uh, So as you know, she was abducted on October 31st. And it was in November of that same year that Norris uh, became reacquainted with someone named Joseph Jackson, who he had been in prison with uh, previous years. Um, He basically got comfortable enough in this new friendship that he thought that he could tell Jackson everything that he and Bitteker did in detail. I um, feel like even as close as the three of us are, I would never be like, guys, guess what I did Saturday night? Like, it's just right? not something you publicly you talk about. It's, no. not, yeah, it's not something you should be proud about and be bragging about to your friends. So, uh, Jackson, obviously, when he heard all of these confessions by Norris, didn't feel comfortable with what he was being told. So he went to his attorney to talk about what he should do. Uh, And his attorney suggested that he go to the authorities. So together, Jackson and his attorney brought these confessions to the attention of the LAPD, who in turn uh, told them to go to the Hermosa Beach police to deal with it. So Paul Bynum, a detective from the Hermosa Beach police, was put on the case. Um, And he made initial notes about the confession that they seemed to match reports of several teenage girls who had gone missing in the area the previous few months. So that was a bit suspicious. There was another confession made by Norris to Jackson that they mentioned to the police uh, that they noted a victim, Robin Robeck, had made a very similar police report that she had been sprayed in the face with mace before being dragged into a van and sexually assaulted by two Caucasian men in their mid-30s and was then released. So this happened uh, the same day that they attempted to abduct Jan Mallon, but she got away. So Uh, they actually maced a second female. I never actually found that out. I guess my research abilities are Yeah, there was this... (laughs) <laughs> it was the same day of the attempted abduction of Jan Mallon that they did the same thing to a woman named uh, Robin Robeck. However, with her, they successfully sexually assaulted and abducted her and then released her or later that day. Why, would why you... do you think? Yeah. Why do you think that they would release her and not kill her? That's such a good question. 
because that was like their their first victim they were like well do we release her or kill her and they said well they she can identify us and life in prison is worse than killing her and getting away with it so they're just dumb at this point terrible people and i'm gonna say it they're dumb Absolutely. Because after this uh, investigator made the connection between these confessional stories and the reports they'd been getting over the past couple of months, uh, Bynum actually sent an investigator to Robeck, the victim of that assault. They sent an investigator to her house to conduct a photo lineup uh, in hopes of them identifying the potential perpetrators. And she positively identified Norris and Bittaker as her assailants in this lineup. So after this identification, uh, Norris was placed under surveillance without his knowledge, of course. But he was placed under surveillance by uh, the police to see if they could catch him doing anything illegal so they could bring him in on charges. And it was less than a month later that they found him uh, dealing marijuana. So they arrested him on parole violation. And it was the same day uh, that they arrested Bittaker at his Burbank motel room for the sexual assault of Robin Robeck. And because she, he was found with marijuana in his pocket at the time of the arrest, he was also brought in and kept for charges of parole violation. So after uh, Bittaker and Norris are arrested and brought into the, uh, the jail cell, um, the investigators bring in Robeck to do a live lineup because they need to revalidate the photo lineup to make sure she can pick out the same assailants. Uh, and unfortunately, she was not able to positively identify them in the live lineup. So uh, they ended up getting charges against her sexual assault dropped simply because they didn't believe there was enough physical evidence and she wasn't able to identify them in a live lineup. But despite the fact that the charges against uh, her assault were dropped. They were still kept in prison for further investigation because of their parole violations. So that's a really good thing because police uh, were able to get search warrants of Bittaker's motel room, uh, their van, the Murder Mac, as well as Norris's apartment. And they found an abundance of very incriminating evidence, including jewelry from their victims, uh, many of the weapons they used in the murders. Over 500 Polaroid photos they took uh, of unconsenting teenage girls and young women at various beaches. Um, And also found, which was the most horrific evidence, was, of course, the audio recording of the torture of Ledford. So with all of this evidence presented to Norris, despite the fact that he initially denied all involvement, he began to confess to police after waiving his Miranda rights and began to tell them about everything they did, but under the scope that Bittaker was more guilty than he was. Oh, I mean, so he tried to frame Bittaker, essentially. Yeah, he was kind of trying to play it off as Bittaker had the biggest role in this, as he was kind of just an acquaintance that helped him out with it. Oh. Which I can understand a little bit. He shouldn't be charged less, or like, whatever. but. I do agree that Bittaker definitely had a larger role in all of it, but it they're still both terrible people. Absolutely. So his uh, uh, he was brought in for questioning November 30th, 1979, Norris was, and it was then on March 18th of 1980 that he received a plea bargain for the confession he gave and the willingness to testify against Bittaker in court. So the plea bargain he had received was that prosecutors agreed that they were not going to seek the death penalty for him, nor would they seek life uh, imprisonment without parole at his upcoming sentence. What a shame. So, so due to this plea bargain, on May 7th of 1980, Roy Norris pled guilty in court to four counts of first degree murder, one count of second degree murder two counts of sexual assault and one count of robbery and was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison, but has the chance for parole. So after his sentencing on April 24th, Bittaker was arraigned for 29 charges. And these charges included kidnapping, sexual assault, sodomy, murder, and various other charges that included criminal conspiracy 
and possession of firearms, as well as being charged with uh, two counts of conspiracy to commit murder for a past failed crime that didn't involve Norris. On all these arraignments, he was asked how he pled, and he stayed silent. So the judge took it upon themselves to assume that he was pleading not guilty, so they brought him to trial. And after the trial was complete, a jury only took 90 minutes to deliberate and decide that he should be sentenced to death and convicted of 26 felony accounts, uh, five for murder, five for kidnapping, as well as various others for criminal conspiracy, sexual assault, oral copulation, sodomy, and an ex-felon in possession of firearms. So 90 minutes. 90 minutes. minutes. (laughs) There's been cases where it's taken them like two weeks. Mm -hmm. 90 minutes. (laughs) So many people obviously were very happy with his sentence to death because of the absolutely horrific crimes that he did. However, his true sentence was never carried out as he died of natural causes as an inmate at the San Quentin State Prison at uh, in December of 2019. It sounds morbid of me to say, but it's quite unfortunate that they died of natural causes because I think they deserve the worst way possible to go. Yeah, but that's I just agree. me. And I'm yeah. like, people will have varying views on this, but they were horrible people and they deserve what they did to those victims or worse. I don't- I don't think there should be a great degree of variation in the opinions on what they did because it was horrible. And I think everybody should recognize that. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't um, Norris recently just pass away too? Like, so Bitteker died December of this past year. And then didn't Norris die in February of 2020? Uh, Yeah. So Bitteker died in prison on the 13th of December of 2019. And then Roy Norris... Uh, followed him only a couple months later, dying in prison on the 24th of February in uh, of this year, of 2020. Do you know how old they were when they died? So yeah. Norris was born in 48, and the crimes took place in 79, so they were like 31. Okay, yeah. Because I know we kind of touched upon it with this whole identification stuff. Um, wouldn't that pose some issues as well so as you mentioned earlier uh john e douglas made a criminal profile of them and basically said that it was the most horrific criminal profile he's ever created so i just wanted to go a little bit more into criminal profiling for those who are unfamiliar um there are various models of criminal profiling, but the fbi's method has kind of been the most well-known and publicized because it's the method that we see most frequently on like television, such as Criminal Minds and Silence of the Lambs and such like that. So the FBI calls their form of profiling criminal investigative analysis, but there are also other kinds made by psychologists, such as investigative psychology and crime action profiling. So exactly what criminal profiling is Uh, It basically helps investigators to examine evidence from crime scenes and victims and witnesses uh, reports to help develop an offender description in hopes of maybe identifying them based on their personality and what they are as people. So some of the descriptors that they use in their profiles include psychological variables such as personality traits, uh, psychopathology and behavioral patterns, as well as their demographic variables like age, race, and their approximate geographic location. They usually use profiles to narrow down a field of suspects uh, or figure out how to interrogate this suspect successfully based on their behavioral patterns. That's super neat. Yeah, this is the reason, like, I saw criminal profiling on criminal minds, and I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do when I grow up. And that's why I, I love it. Science. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So criminal profiling in the FBI is relatively new. Uh, they created their behavioral science unit in 1974 uh, to investigate serial rape and homicide cases. So from 76 to 79, 
several FBI agents, which were most noticeably John E. Douglas, as he created many of the profiles, and Robert Ressler interviewed uh, many serial murderers to develop theories how to ca- characterize offenders with profiling. And they came up with the organized and disorganized dichotomy to basically explain uh, how some criminals are very organized and how are very smart and leave no evidence. And there's another side to criminals that are very disorganized and basically easier to catch because they don't think about the evidence they're going to leave behind. I learned about um, these disorganized and organized killers like back in my grade 10 intro to like sociology, psychology, whatever class. I didn't realize that Douglas and Ressler were actually the guys behind it. Yeah, That's so they're so cool. Yeah, it's it's super neat. It's unfortunate that um there is some psychological debate regarding how not beneficial this actually is, but how like accurate it is because there's been psychologist critique that because John Douglas and Robert Ressler aren't true psychologists, there's some errors in their methodology. Um but I think over like the quarter of a decade that the FBI has been used with criminal profiling, like I think they've they've used social science to support their evidence and support strong methodologies, and I think it's I think it can be very helpful. <laughs> um, is there also the debate that they, because it's more of like a personal thing, assessing another individual, is it? suggestible in any way like is it open for suggestibility between I think there's definitely room for bias in something like criminal profiling like there is with anything that's more of an uh like an art than a science like I look at uh shoe print analysis or fingerprint analysis where is as much as we can use like a system to try to narrow down the prints we're still using people for that final comparison. So there's always room for human error. And I think uh, looking at criminal profiling, it's no different. There's definitely room for human error. Interesting. And wasn't, um, was it just Douglas himself that wrote the Netflix show Mindhunter? Because I know when I we wrote our applications into the forensics um, certification program, I actually like quoted Johnny Douglas. I was like, I just want to be like him. I want to profile. <laughs> I love the psychology behind it. He created Mindhunter. It's great. So I think Mindhunter is kind of based on the creation of the behavioral science unit. So it's kind of based on uh, John E. Douglas's work with the FBI so he did write it but they do have various other writers just because they need to make it a good show with some solid writing but yeah this was um criminal profiling was a very very big influence on Mindhunter and actually in season one of episode eight a character Holden Ford who's played by one of my favorites Jonathan Groff (laughs) I love him uh, oh my god me too he voices Ben doesn't he yeah, he voices Ben and Kristoff. Yeah, yeah. Frozen. But in season one, episode eight of Mindhunter, there's actually um, a scene where they get, I say they get access to the Ledford audio tape, but basically this is around the time that the toolbox killers were active and being caught. And Holden uh, Ford goes to one of the new characters of the show to and wants to see what this guy can take and he actually plays the Ledford torture tape that the toolbox killers made in their last murder uh how did I not pick up on that sorry my brain is not working but it was Ford showing it to the new recruit wasn't it yeah okay yeah I know exactly when they're in the basement and okay I did not realize those were the tapes that they showed yeah yeah so there's a little fun I mean it's it's not a fun fact because it's quite horrific crimes, but a little a little bit of realis, realism in TV. <laughs> That's so I, cool. I also read somewhere, I think it's in my big book of serial killers. The so in the book that I have that we kind of like pick our cases off of. It says that John Douglas, he made Scott Glenn, who plays Jack Crawford in the movie Silence of the Lambs. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. 
It's a great movie. But it says that he made the actor cry um, when Glenn was at the behavior sciences unit in Quantico. He played the audio tape of Bideker and Norris torturing these young girls. And before the encounter, it says that Glenn was firmly against capital punishment. So I assume that changed quite quickly after he heard these tapes. Yeah, I, I have nothing so. written on that, but I did I did read about how they mm-hmm. how he played the actual tape for one of the actors in Silence of the Lambs to prepare him. Like that's so that would be the most horrific actor character preparation I think you could go through. I think that's a bit extreme. I agree. Character prep for movies. Like I feel like there's other ways to go about it. Show them a documentary of the fact and people coming out of the courtroom not actually listening to the screams of these victims yeah but that's uh that's what i have to say about criminal profiling uh i think it's super interesting but there's so much to it (laughs) well thank you for all of your information on profiling hopefully we'll have like another episode kind of delving deeper because i know you said that there's more information regarding it so we'll try and find an episode that really went off profiling because this one wasn't really like a forensic science behind it, but we wanted to kind of still include something. Yeah. We still wanted to make it a little educational, but I think in the future, if people are interested in learning more about criminal profiling, it's some definitely something that we can explore a case where it was very instrumental. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, I think that's all for today's episode. Journey, do you have anything else? Um, I just want to mention that for our next episode, we're planning on doing um, a spooky Halloween episode where the three of us each find a case of an unsolved mystery that's super scary, hopefully, and then we'll just <laughs> share that with you guys. So there will be very little forensic science, but hopefully it'll be spooktastic and (laughs) spooptastic yeah instead of a joke I have a fun word um (laughs) yeah so Nicole where can people find us people can find us on Instagram YouTube and Facebook at what the forensics our website is what the forensics.ca and that you can find all of our sources our episodes a little bit about us and we also have a Twitter, which is at WTForensicsPC, where we kind of just update everyone on what's going on for our episodes, keep them up to date, and we can hopefully interact with everyone through there. Awesome. Well, um, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.